Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren. And through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers. Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Today, I'm speaking with Benita Meyersfeld, a gender-based violence expert trained in South Africa and the U.S. with a background as an advisor to the House of Lords of the United Kingdom. Benita's work takes her from the classrooms at Bitch University in Johannesburg to courthouses around the world, representing victims of violence and prosecuting those who abuse their power. Her belief in the power of legal consequences to address violence is absolute. Fiercely thoughtful and unflinchingly empathetic, Benita demonstrates a tremendous capacity to explore the complex moral realities of gender-based violence and structural violence as a whole. Hi, my name is Bonita Myersveld. I am the director of the Center for Applied Legal Studies, which is a public interest law organization based at Wits University. I'm also an associate professor at the law school at Wits University. And I suppose I'd identify myself as an academic, an activist, and a person deeply committed to my family. Welcome. And I love reggae. (laughs) So much so that my three-year-old daughter has been indoctrinated to sing all of Bob Marley's songs. (laughs) But, yeah, no one's perfect. So, Bonnie, you're our gender-based violence expert, or fundi, as they would say here in South Africa. When did you know that gender-based violence was your calling? The moment when it became clear to me was when I was doing my articles at a law firm, so training to be a lawyer just after graduating from my degree. And I was in a commercial law firm and obviously because of who I am feeling that there was a deficiency. So I started to volunteer at an NGO that provides psychosocial assistance to victims of gender-based violence. And literally, without exception, my only useful intervention was to say to the client, do you know that what is happening to you is wrong? And almost always the response would be a pause and then the statement, really? And that was devastating because that was my first realisation of how structural this was. And... There's a battle that needs to be waged. It's not a political battle. It's a battle at the most localized, intimate parts of a society, which, by the way, is the majority of our country. And so there's this public discourse around, well, in South Africa, around transformation, but even globally, you know, and then the lived reality of it at a systemic level is something quite different. So the question of transformation that I'm coming up against is willful blindness, I think. And I am living this problem, certainly internally. I don't exculpate myself from this at all. But it's the external aspect of this that is fueling the anger that I have. Mm. How dare we talk about a notion of transformation when we are blind to structural and inherited inequality from hundreds and hundreds of years of murder, exploitation and eradication and enslavement of people worldwide based on their race and based on their gender. Mm. And I think that's a national phenomenon. 
It's a global phenomenon. A global phenomenon. <laughs> Unfortunately. Absolutely. I hate to say that, but it is. And actually, one of the things that we're exploring here is anger and the legitimacy of that feeling, which is where activism starts many times, isn't it? I feel like I have to tiptoe around that anger and moderate it. And mm. I often think to myself, if I was a man, how would I express this anger? As a woman, how do I express this anger? And I do know that there's this description of experiences with me as being very difficult. But I'm clear that I would not be considered difficult if I was a man. Mm. So what is it like being the angry, persistent, difficult woman? I am completely happy with it because I am happy to be seen as difficult in the face of injustice and inequality. I've got no problem with that. There are times where I'll walk into a situation and go, all right, now pretend you've got a dick and a pair of balls. And your attitude about how to handle it changes. How so? You channel privilege. You channel privilege. And I think it's not as negative as it sounds, actually, because within my heart, within my mind, I've identified about five or six people whom I respect so much that I often think to myself, well, how would they act in this particular situation? All these people who somehow sit in my mind and on my shoulder and I kind of channel that approach and I think that's a positive flip side, but it works. It really works. So, I mean, is that what we all need to do in order to overcome these hardwired, internalized barriers? You know, the voices that tell us, don't say that, don't do that, don't ask for the raise, don't raise your voice, don't question. Do we all need to pretend we have a dick and balls to do that? Or is that a step towards claiming or reclaiming something that is essentially not about a dick mm. and a pair of balls? I think it's a really great question because part of the problem is that this leads to a type of assimilation. You cover certain aspects of your identity so that it makes it easy for everybody else to accept it. And what that means is you develop and assimilate a status quo. So yes, it's the inclusiveness of diversity mm. that is seminal. I personally would hope that I take that approach in order to better maneuver that privilege as opposed to creating that privilege or compromising my own identity in that mm. privilege. I think there are a lot of young women now who are confused on that very issue. You know, the extent to which they can show up authentically female and not have that be viewed as a, a weakness or a liability versus mimicking a set of behaviors that allows mm -hmm. them to get ahead. I think there's actually a pre-existing problem before even getting to that, for many people recognizing that they are not accountable for their own exclusion. So for example, when I ran the sexual harassment inquiry at WITS in 2013, which was horrible. There'd been this exposure of four men who had committed all forms of sexual harassment, violence, intimidation, exploitation. It was vile. And that led to an inquiry which I led into systemic sexual harassment at the university. And I've done a lot of this type of work before, but this was the worst experience because I was sitting opposite people talking to me about the experiences they had at the university, and I'm part of it. Mm. I'm part of it. So there is this pre-existing, deep, ingrained sense of self-obligation mm. for harm. And we see that, as you say, globally, 
not only in respect of gender and sex being responsible for your own exclusion, but also in terms of poverty. Mm. We hear the narrative of people must just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We don't understand that there is a system in place, a very well-structured system, developed by economic powerhouses, both corporates and international bodies, that ensure the suppression of people in poverty. And that's not a mistake. It's a necessary precondition to the utilization of poor labor to ensure that there can be as much profit as possible. These systems work for the privileged. The privileged have the power to retain them. And then the creme de la creme of this violent approach to life is you make it seem that it's the oppressed's fault. Mm. So the problem is certainly systemic, but what I found myself doing in my job a lot is talking to people about what they may not have identified, mostly because they're young women. And it's, I equivocate often about doing that because what legitimacy do I have as a white woman to do that? But my conclusion is always I'd rather make the mistake than make the mistake of mm. not doing it. You use that word legitimacy, which is also coming up a lot in these conversations. We're all looking in and saying, do I have what it takes to do this? Where do you think legitimacy derives from? My answer, I think, is understanding why one wants to act in a certain way. Mm. There is, of course, the phenomenon of the white knight coming in to save. Sure, yeah. So I think, obviously, the question is, well, what is motivating you to do yeah. that? And then I think there's a need for self-journeys and self-awareness, mm. and those are horrendously difficult, and I myself have been through them and continue to go through it. But I went through a very difficult moment at one stage, which I shared with my colleagues where we were talking in incredible depth and hurtful and necessary ways about being excluded and judged and undermined because of race. Really hard. And I went through a stage where on every single level I doubted myself. I doubted my identity as a white woman and feminist. I doubted the extent to which my feminism was legitimate because white feminists have often invisibilized and eclipsed the experience of black women and universalized women's experiences under the ambit of a very particular experience. Mm. So did I have legitimacy as a white feminist? And then did I have legitimacy that I'm Jewish? But did I have a legitimacy as being Jewish because I have very complex and anxious concerns about the occupation in the occupied Palestinian territories. And that's seen as a betrayal of my faith and my people. So who am I there? I am the mother of a black child. And somebody once said to me, oh, well, that's benevolent colonialism. So is that legitimate? And there were many aspects of this, and I had to work through them and do work through them, and I'm in a much clearer space in my mind as to what my role is and how I own my reality and what type of critique I'm prepared to take in and what type of critique I'm not prepared to take in. It was pretty destabilizing. But then I came out on the other side with an acceptance of some of that 
illegitimacy and then an absolute refutation of others. And so my role as a mother, I took off the table as an issue. That was it. Being Jewish and with the occupied Palestinian territories, that I'm comfortable now that I am a Jew committed to my history, committed to my grandfather, committed to the current rise in anti-Semitism worldwide, and the firm knowledge that we can no longer do what we're doing in the occupied Palestinian territories, and that it was never okay. I'm okay with that. But the duality, I think it's too easy to be monolithic in one's views. This is the hard stuff. It's precisely this that I find is important as an activist. We dare not be simple (laughs) in our approach, and we dare not be brave in sometimes being categorical. And the two have to coexist. Those dualities are part of a lived existence. But for many of us, we are navigating those micro and macro dualities that don't find expression in labels that people would recognize. Mm. But they're a part Mm. of who we are. Mm. You know, they're a part of trying to live thoughtfully and mindfully and not just retreat to simplistic understandings of ourself or other people. Mm. I think for a lot of people, it's easier to have a simple understanding of good and bad and right and wrong and and use that as your compass. And you're describing something that requires real daily interrogation. It is exhausting. (laughs) And I think one has to learn one's lessons from the right teachers. People who are teaching from a basis of insight and wisdom, it's got nothing to do with age, by the way, and that are able to give you those hard lessons because it comes from a particular point of view that is not itself compromised. And I suppose in some ways it starts with your willingness to regard yourself as a student. Yes. I'm looking, I'm learning, I'm interrogating myself. And I think it also means I'm willing to be a repository of your anger. Mm. I think that's the hardest thing for me, but I don't take it on from everybody. (laughs) I take it on from those I trust. We're talking about anger, but actually I think what many of us are experiencing now is rage. A hundred percent, I have been feeling rage, yeah. (laughs) And I personally am having a difficult time holding rage and knowing what to do with it. And I feel like you hold your own rage and that of so many other people whom you encounter. To me, it's palpable. You work in a space that is fraught with rage. It's humans being abused and violated very fundamentally. What do we do with that? I had a very profound moment when I was doing my PhD. I was writing on violence against women in international law, particularly domestic violence. My theory was that what happens in intimate spaces is so cruel and so dangerous that it actually constitutes a crime against humanity or at least a violation of a human rights that states are responsible for. That it's an international issue. It's not a national domestic issue, alone at least. And in doing my work and research, I got to a devastating point where I realized that nothing will ever stop men hurting and killing their intimate partners. Nothing. And I was paralyzed because then I thought, well, why am I doing this? Mm. And 
I went through this for about a month until I realized that the power I have is not to change human beings, but to change institutional responses to harm. That's my power. And you know what? I think in small ways, I've been able to take my rage and do that. I published a book on this. I came back to South Africa to implement my theory, which implements the model of lawyering, which also engages psychosocial understanding of victims and survivors and perpetrators and service providers. And the model is working. And the next step is to roll out that model in other contexts within the country and ultimately perhaps globally. And I'm not for one moment saying that there's a panacea to domestic violence. I am saying that that's where I channeled my rage. Mm. This is who I am. I rage. And I take this on because it matters to me. So the other point that came into my mind when you were asking that question is something my mother always said to me, which was, don't think that you can solve any problems and make other people happy if you yourself are not happy. And I always thought that was a cop-out. That's really not the point. Of course, she was absolutely right, as she was about almost everything. And I learned a very valuable lesson that internal happiness doesn't mean a happy-go-lucky-ness. It means having the power not to be broken down, but to continue to change. And sometimes we lose that power because we're exhausted and because if we're doing our jobs properly, we will never stop feeling the pain of it. The minute we stop feeling the pain, then we are compromised. And what that actually means is we are suffering secondary trauma. But then we can't do the job, then we must stop. And by constantly feeling the pain, you've got to have power inside you to understand that that pain coexists with joy, coexists with beauty, coexists with humanity that is worth engaging with. My personal life is therefore of profound importance to me. Mm. Self-care, but also collective care, that we are there for each other mm. in this work. And being there for each other means creating a space in which this pain can continue to influence and feed our work without destroying ourselves. And I've seen the consequences of not doing that. One can lose an understanding of where the rage should be directed, mm. because then it's directed everywhere. Yeah, right. You lose your sense of purpose and beyond just reacting to the latest violation. Right, and as rage for rage's sake. Mm. Which I think is a lot of what gets put out into the universe right now. I mean, you use the word joy, which is something that I'm thinking a lot about these days, because we have this public discourse that is now so totally infused with rage. We don't have a collective discourse around joy. There's almost no current antidote. Mm. <laughs> to our collective rage out there. And joy is actually something at which we have to work very hard. I think it's okay that we're in a context of enormous rage. I think it's okay that we're not talking about joy. But the constructive work towards joy will come mm. because that's the evolution of humanity. That's the evolution of us in our microcosm but also in our macrocosm. That joyfulness is a project, or self-care, or whatever you want to call it, 
if you just throw yourself into the fray of the issues, whatever they are, they will spit you out the other side. But how do you chart a long career in it? And what you're describing is being incredibly mindful of how you approach the totality of your life and not just your work. It is such an individual approach. Many may, in fact, criticize me for not immersing myself completely into the activist world. There are different levels of activism, and sometimes I wonder. Over the last two years, I've walked a much more cautious line. It's deeply, deeply individual. I must also say what worries me a little about the activist social justice world is this idea that there is one homogenous approach to structural change. We need doddering academics who are seen to be more palatable to repositories of power because they're less threatening. But then we need the people outside who are protesting, screaming, holding up signs that say, don't forget Marikana. We need all of these players bringing different expertise, capabilities, and playing different roles in achieving success in what ultimately is a battle and a war. We must not think that there's only one route towards the destabilization of structural inequality. Surprise attacks. That's what we need. That's the warfare. You're comfortable with the warfare metaphor, which implies mm. there will be a winner. I'm very comfortable with warfare. I am comfortable with the notion of violence. And I understand and appreciate how deeply contradictory that is. And I understand and appreciate how dangerous that is. And perhaps that's what I need to say. Not that I endorse the use of violence, but I understand the use of violence. And I think we have to be brave enough to accept the fact that for some people that is all there is. Yeah. And unless we can participate in remedial action that is successful before we lead to violence, then we are not the ones to judge and call in a deeply myopic way for a peaceful resolution of structural mm. harm. I suppose what I have to also be honest about is the fact that I do believe that there's a right and a wrong. Right. We can't view violence in a moral vacuum. The blindness that you describe is this hallmark around where we are today, not just in South Africa, mm. but in other places as well. You know, the, there's this tolerance for a public violence. It, to me, is like seeping into our discourse, how we speak to each other. But I think if we want to truly solve this kind of structural violence, we have to at least immerse ourselves into the mental space of the perpetrator. Understanding what's behind violence as opposed to simply taking the view that that person is a universal representation of that group. But we do have to understand where a group responds to the harm perpetrated against them with force. Or well, is that improper? And I suppose the difficult part of what I'm saying is that there is some violence that can never be justified or explained. And yet the response to that violence can, and I think it's okay to distinguish. Whether as individuals or as collectives, there are reasons that people do what they do. And Exactly, exactly. And then there's an aspect of international conflict, laws of war, that prescribe the way in which you can enter into battle and kill each other. And that brings to a head the simultaneous incomprehensible stark contrast between humankind being at its most depraved and at its most sophisticated. Mm. I give training on these rules to armed forces. And we hear about where they don't work, but I hear about where they do work. So 
the use of violence is something that I think we constantly have to understand why it's there. We have to diagnose this. And yes, I would have to retract from any messaging that it's justified. No, actually, I can't retract from that. Don't. I mean, I think it's an incredibly valuable conversation to have. It's delving into something that, you know, we can put a label on. That's bad. That's wrong. Well, it happens. And, you know, you say, as it relates to domestic violence, it crosses borders, it crosses generations. You're accepting the fact that it will exist in perpetuity. We're accepting that, just as we're accepting war. So let's at least apply rules to it then. Know that if you do this, there will be certain clear and consistently applied repercussions. Is that how you see it? A hundred percent. The only thing that prevents degraded human behavior consequences. Mm. It's anything. And the interesting point of domestic violence for me is it's important to understand what makes men hurt women. And it's a depraved, disgusting conclusion, word, in the continued dehumanization of women in the same way that there's the continued dehumanization of black people. Right. Truly solving that problem, though, is understanding systemic harm and systemic responses. And I don't actually think there's such a thing as progress in society. I think there's such a thing as an ebbing and a flowing of moments of purity and moments of depravity in a society. I almost see it as seasonal, right? So you go through some good periods. Look at our country. We went through this notion, artificial as it was, of a rainbow nation. Everyone was chuckling and happy and whatever. And then we realized that actually nothing's changed for the majority of the people. And that wonderful flow of enthusiasm and happiness starts to ebb. And it will flow again. And it will ebb. And that's why I keep on coming back to the structures. What happens? How do you deal with the ebbing? I want to finish where we started when I first met you. When we started to talk about the intersection between your personal identity and your work, you immediately went back to your Jewish identity. Hmm. Talk a little bit about the role that that piece of your identity has played in shaping the range of reactions that you've described today. It shaped you. Fundamentally. Fundamentally. But part of it is good old-fashioned indoctrination, right? So you grow up in a Jewish community that talks about its success in the face of devastation. And it is an identity that I think goes beyond, obviously, religion and ties me inextricably to a whole history and geography that I love, while I can simultaneously oppose aspects of it. And I love community. And probably that's something that makes me enormously happy. I love belonging. Who doesn't? And at times I've not belonged, right? So it's, I'm not sure I can really understand why it's such an important part of who I am, but it's visceral. And I carry with me a sense of being persecuted, actually, historic persecution. Mm. The persecution of Jews has manifested in almost every single crime that we understand today, from slavery to the deprivation of nationality to segregation. In fact, it's kind of infiltrated through the first generation into the second generation. And the studies are showing a connection to that, which also 
brings home the seriousness of it, that it's imprinted on DNA. They can identify with it entirely. We are products of a whole variety of forces, the ones that we're aware of and the ones that we carry but don't necessarily conscious of every day. And when I listen to you, I think that that infuses your approach to the concept of violence and to mm. who's a victim mm. and who's a villain. Mm. Do those labels serve us or do they actually block us from really unlocking something far more powerful in our human spirit? I believe in the notion of a human species that comprises people of the most mm. dire depravity and evil and wonderful beauty and enthusiasm for life. My work is focused on the former. My personal life is on the latter. And obviously there are times when we do better, but I suppose the pattern of progress and regress is a consistent one and one that will always mark us as a species. Mm. Some of what I think we're trying to do with these is to go underneath the issues, mm. not only to find the people, but to find some of the underlying ideas and emotions mm that are there, whether you're talking about migration or corruption or gender-based violence, we're talking about people. Because those labels <laughs> make us lazy yeah. and make us think that everybody means the same thing with them. Right. Yeah, no, I see that. You're really forcing us beneath or around the labels. And that, to me, is incredibly valuable. Thank you. So thank you. Absolute pleasure. I've really found this amazing. <laughs> thank you. I'm comfortable with the notion of violence. Did Bonnie actually say that? I certainly didn't expect to hear an argument in favor of violence from a gender-based violence activist. Her willingness to wade into the moral complexities of these issues is for me so admirable and so necessary, especially now. And the conversation takes place against this backdrop of increasing public discourse and awareness of sexual and gender-based violence. It's in the headlines daily with the Me Too campaign. And yet Bonnie's contribution to the discourse is quite unique. She doesn't follow the familiar script. Instead, she says, no, I'm going to get knee high in the messy realities of human behavior and in our proclivity for violence. We want to believe that we're moving forward to a world where violence is reduced, where men are not abusing women, where the world is a safer place. And yet Bonnie poses questions about the whole concept of human progress how we treat each other in warfare and at home. Maybe the nature of violence won't ever change, but our clear and consistent responses to violence can. Courageous Conversations is supported by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren, with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations. You can also visit gillianreilly.com slash podcasts for more information or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash courageous conversations. Thanks for listening. <laughs>